My name is Michael Diet, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining the hour is Nate Fisher. Nate, first time you and I are chatting here, but introduce yourself to the audience and to me. Who are you? What have you done throughout your career? And what are you doing currently? Great to be here. So my my background is a range of business, uh, opportunistic, I'd say opportunistic macro-themed investing is how I define my career. I, uh, I started buying distressed real estate in 2011 out of law school and bought about uh, 7,000 apartments across Florida and Texas, not based on any sort of uh, particular interest in real estate, but based on a recognition that there was this extraordinary opportunity combo of distress and red state demographics, people moving sustained moves that I didn't think were going to disappear and would, would res- result in a restoration of prices and in some ways, that theme has continued to define my career. So as that trade matured, stepped out of that, no longer I focused on real estate and started thinking about what's the, what the next themes are. And that, that led me to where I am now, which is, uh, in some sense, at the intersection of politics and the political changes in our society at a very high level. And what I see as emerging very large-scale business opportunities that result. So I think the big defining Themes of our time are our politics and, and the, really the divide and the change there. And uh, that led me to start my current company, which is New Founding, which is a venture firm focused on the American right, focused on opportunities related to this. And essentially a, a set of companies and a set of organizations that are all related to this theme and are all different ways of making, uh, in a sense, making Trades based on this theme, helping accelerate accelerate things that I think are are going to be important given these changes. I'm in. I'm based in Dallas, Texas. Not from here, but I've been here about five years. Have a wife and four children with one more on the way. Congrats on the one more on the way. So I give you credit, obviously, because you're you're out there and you're clearly defining that you're focused on venture funding for companies that are on the American right side. Is it fair to say that when you look at the VC industry? Every single VC firm has some political leaning or a certain way of viewing the future that permeates across all their investments, and they're just not public about what that is. I'm trying to get to the question of how much of the VC side really is left versus right. So I think that venture, and I'm thinking of, to be clear, I think I'm thinking of politics in a very broad sense. It's not just like, do we give a few dollars to the Dems or the Republicans? But really, these the, the sort of broad Aristotelian conception of, of politics is this question of how we live together, the order of society. And I would say venture is a space that is particularly permeated with politics by its very nature. You're not just you're not just buying a company that already makes widgets and hoping to help make widgets a little more efficiently. You're you're betting on companies that are in many cases, very clearly intended to reshape the future. So the way I, the example I give is Facebook's not not its current mission, but its original mission was to make the world a more open and connected place. That is not a classic business mission of somewhere widgets. That wasn't even a, a mission like Microsoft's, which was a computer on every desk. That was a very clear intent to how their technology was going to reshape the world in a way that would change it with profound political implications. And that part about making the world more open and connected, that's that's not just a business vision. That's very clearly a political vision. They, they want to see a world that's more connected. And I would say that's just one example of how, in some sense, there's an inherent political element to, to companies, to firms that are particularly focused on envisioning the future. And, and there's there's different uses, whether they're whether they're even conscious or or subconscious. 
there's different value systems and, and beliefs about the world and the beliefs about how people can can live together and work together that tend to shape these. Now, I would say, yeah, venture tends to be, they tend to be left-leaning, although I think you're seeing this divide into sort of democratic-aligned venture firms where they're very clearly embracing that and a lot that are are very clearly not in that category. Increasingly, they'd be aligning with the, you call it the Elon camp by, or, or whatever. But that, that's, that's still a small minority. So that's that's one element. And then I would say, I think that you also have a lot of firms where they don't like seeing themselves as stuck in a partisan divide. And I understand this. That's that's actually why we haven't just called ourselves a venture firm for Republicans and tried. We're not, we're not just investing in sort of Republican companies or something. Uh, because that, that challenge is at the venture level, we should be really spearheading and envisioning the future, which I think is a step beyond uh, the existing partisan divide. So you have a lot of companies, firms that don't want to think of themselves as political. Well, let's say they invest in Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin is, in some sense, Bitcoin's mission is to replace the US dollar. There's nothing more political than that. It's hard to conceive of anything more political than replacing the US dollar. And yet it, it steps outside of the conventional left-right framework but it's still undeniably political. So to illustrate that point, the space is permeated with what are often very big, very bold political ambitions. And I would say that the predominant ideology is not going to be right aligned, certainly on the cultural uh, side, even when it's even when it's not necessarily embracing a sort of open democratic agenda. Yeah, and I, I think you'd argue totally not in particular when it comes to the technology side, right? I think the the arguments of left versus right when it comes to business uh, are ultimately a sector argument more than anything else. Well, elaborate on that when you say it's a... For example, Republican congressional members, right? They tend to invest more in energy stocks, whereas uh, Democratic congressional members tend to invest more in technology stocks. And that's been, I think, a dynamic across the board. There are actually some ETFs that track that. And notice that there are certain sector leanings in terms of just the two political divides. So, so I, I just, I, I wonder how much of the last 10 plus years of fund flows are largely driven by technology, using your terminology, reshaping the world, allowing for maybe certain political classes to uh, potentially manipulate it. So, so that's an interesting dynamic you, you describe it. I'll, I'll dig into that a little more. So I think part of that is. In a sense, you can think of energy stocks as inherently aligned with the right. The right is, the right is friendly by, by nature to the production of energy. I would say the left is unfriendly to energy. It's not even just unfriendly to hydrocarbons. They've been unfriendly to nuclear. Ultimately, in many ways, they have a degrowth agenda, which actually can put them in tension with some of technology. But the right has been notably absent in the technology world. And I'll, I'll attribute that to, a few factors. I think in some sense, the right has been constrained by a conservative mindset. So I uh, notice I say right, I don't say conservative. I, I use the word conservative occasionally in what we're talking about. It's certainly a major share of the sort of people who were, were looking to sell products to, were looking to serve. But I don't think our, our a mission should... If, if a mission is defined by conservative, then I think you tend to view technology as an enemy. And there tends to develop a significant skepticism about technology. And I think since World War II, especially, the right has been in many ways defined by this, this fundamentally conservative mindset. And if you think about why, why that leads to inevitable conflict with technology, conservatism in many ways sidesteps the question of what should we build? 
And it stays out of those, which require really fundamental questions about, about fundamental principles, about uh, aspiration. And its coalition is brought together by the fact that there's agreement on preserving many of the good things of the past. And the problem is technology is by nature disruptive. Technology will result in the disruption of good things of the past. It will fundamentally ensure that conservatives lose as technology progresses. So it's natural that conservatives, if that's your defining idea, look at technology. And and if all you have is a preservation of good things of the past, you're just going to see technology steadily erode those things year after year, decade after decade, and tend to, tend to instinctively look at it as the enemy. And what's that going to lead, going to, lead to conservative not going into technology? Uh, it, it's also going to lead to them not really developing a positive vision that can inspire people who are naturally drawn to technology. So a lot of people are naturally drawn to technology, and if they don't see conservatives putting out a positive vision of what they should be doing, then... They're just going to default to the other side, the progressive side that that does have a positive vision for how you can use technology. And so I think you've seen this sort of, and, and then naturally you're going to have more more progressives in in the technology world and more conservatives out of it. And that's just going to reinforce that cycle as it confirms the priors of conservatives that technology is an inherent force for for liberalism or for progressivism uh, and reinforce this suspicion. And I think that's a problem because I think technology is a powerful force that is going to reshape the world. It's going to, in many ways, find what the world looks like. And if we don't have a positive vision that's an alternative to the progressive vision, then we are, we're not going to be a participant in that conversation. We're not going to be playing in that arena. And, and yet I think we have this golden opportunity. I, I believe our vision, I believe an alternative vision is actually attractive to a very large share of people. In many ways, the left vision is dismal. And increasingly, it's unattractive even to technologists, fundamentally almost a, an anti-technology degrowth, anti, anti-human innovation and anti-excellence agenda that leaves this giant opening for a, uh, for a better vision. So that's, that's a macro dynamic that I, at the, at the very high level, would like to see changed. And it involves, in some sense, reshaping the, the very identity of the movement into something that's more positive uh, rather than something that's simply focused on preserving things of the past. So you probably have seen some of those uh, stats as I have that show that the younger generation increasingly year after year has a more and more negative view of future of the state of the government, right? It seems like we've lost the, the sense of a collective sense of positivity. How can you reshape the future if you, if you have this kind of general feeling of malaise, malaise for like a way of saying it, which you could argue is maybe tri- being driven by social media, but maybe other societal factors? I think that's a uh, good question. And I, I, I don't know that a, I think people can be woken up from that. They can be inspired in some sense, something that is often you have a malaise because there's, there's two kinds of malaise, right? There's a fundamental sort of temperamental pessimism. And I think that's very real and very likely in many cases. And that, that could be driven by any number of factors all the way to physiognomy, brain chemistry, hormones. Who knows? There's a lot of, there's a lot of factors I think are, are very concerning. But I think the other type of malaise is just, I haven't been, I haven't seen anything that gets me out of bed. I haven't seen anything that inspires me. And some some cases that's, I, I mean, not a lot in politics, right? You see a lot of people are disillusioned with politics until they aren't, until they see someone who offers something different. And uh, I think we've seen a lot of that. So there's certainly a hope to uh, to inspire a lot of people with something new, with something different. But I think the other side is uh, history has never been 
reshaped by majorities. History is it's always something that involves often very small numbers of people. And what that really tells you is there's just an opportunity out there that that even relatively small numbers of people who uh, believe in something and will really uh, bet on it will 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 put enormous energy in it. Will put enor- take enormous risk on the basis of it. Uh, those are likely to be the groups that drive a drive any sort of reshaping. And I think what's what's interesting is that that's particularly in some sense. I think that's been true in politics as much as we try to hide that to some extent and and put on this sort of gloss of majority democracy as the driving force. But uh, I would say that's still been largely the force in, in politics, but it's very obviously the force in technology. And everyone knows that that's really what drives te- technological innovation and disruptive technology. And so there's no need to even, there's no need to even pretend otherwise. I think it's actually inspiring to people that, you can go out there and you and a small group of other people can actually meaningfully change things in a time of malaise and, and you don't need everyone. You don't need to convince half the population. Certainly not in the early stages. I think they go along, but everyone knows that those sort of late majorities are, they're going to follow a generally sort of inevitable trend at that point. So on that, on that point of malaise, I name the space purposely restoring trust in society, technology, and uh, ourselves. Um, I hear there's always going to be a small group that at the margin is what changes things for largely everybody else. But I want to I want to maybe dissect a little bit why we've had such a breakdown of trust in terms of just the societal fabric, the, the social contract. Uh, it seems like we're in a world where uh, nobody trusts uh, anybody except those that are in their own hyper-localized tribe. Uh, I get increasingly concerned about that myself as somebody who has a large following and seeing the way that people think or maybe not think. They just regurgitate without engaging in any real thoughtful conversation. But um, what's the root of that? You can argue that that's always been a a dynamic of of society, of human nature. But it seems like we've never really been in a place like we are today where uh, there is such distrust among everybody. I I don't know that... So I don't know that it's unprecedented. In many ways, I'd say it's probably the norm in human history. Although I think it's somewhat of an anomaly in America and, and even more so and the Western Western world where we've become accustomed to a high trust society. And what that means is that means is uh, both the sort of underlying expectation of societal trust and then trusted institutions. And I think you see both of those declining. And uh, really, I think you see both of those declining in the early stages of what could be a much more catastrophic collapse, actually. So we still, in many ways, behave as a high-trust society. That was an interesting and interesting sort of key point was between my my time in real estate and, between, and what I'm doing now, I spent a year traveling to 65 countries and talking to people, uh, setting up interviews with people in business and uh, and then ordinary people on the street when I would do the do tours through, through these towns and through the different cities and just get a sense of the different patterns and I would say it's still very, it's very clear the gradients of different levels of trust in society. It was striking, I think, the extent to which the U.S. and uh, a few other societies were exceptions and that they were much higher trust to ways that would even shock people in countries that didn't have those dynamics. Uh, but we remained high then. We've certainly seen a lot more division. We've seen in some sense politics become a lot more important. Uh, which is a pattern you can see in, in lower, in lower trust societies, sort of who wins becomes a much higher stakes endeavor, uh, higher stakes, uh, matter. Uh, 
But I think you're, we're still in many ways, we still behave like most people believe the courts are, are likely to give a fair outcome. We still behave like most people are likely to fulfill their bargains. We still actually act like most elite institutions, even if we know the institutions have lost credibility in some domains. We still act like we expect them to generally behave like high trust institutions. But that could rapidly collapse. I have this sort of thesis that we could see something paralleling a bank run on trust. I don't know if the dynamics would, would result in something as rapid. But uh, you see scenarios sometimes when as institutions start to lose trust, other people recognize they're losing trust. Imagine when it comes to a university, you suddenly see you, you see some major employers stop hiring at that university. And you suddenly, it, it's already a sort of edgy case of whether it's worth the money to send someone there. And now you uh, send your kid there and now you see people pulling out and suddenly some of the top students publicly, the people who clearly have other options, they uh, publicly withdraw and decide they're not going to join. And you can imagine a sort of rapid spiral where uh, in some sense, there's a sort of rapid loss in credibility as more and more elite employers recognize that that the students with options, the best students are like are not likely to be there. And, and in turn, more and more students no longer believe that that university is going to be able to get them a job. And in a sense, the, the sort of trust brokering feature rapidly disappears. Uh, you certainly can see that with governments, as you saw, I think, at the collapse of the Soviet Union. And uh, so I think there's still the possibility of a, a much more uh, acute collapse of trust that would resemble something more like a, a bank run. But we've already seen a significant decline relative to where we were 15 years ago, 16 years ago, before the, particularly before the financial crisis. And yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. It's something that I think is, it's a reversion in many ways to a sort of norm globally, to an ab, maybe a mean globally, but it's, uh, it's certainly something that is alarming for Americans. So then the question becomes, how do we restore trust? And I think that, I guess there's another dynamic driving this, and I'll, I'll get into this as well. So I used to think digital, digital trends lead to the inevitable destruction of trust. And this is another point I've, I've made uh, a few times where I think AI, you could think of trust as being built on the ability to look good and credible on television. It's been a real element of trust in the last uh, 50, 60 years. JFK was elected partially because he looked good on television and sound good, sound really professional, sound credible. And in some sense, digital technology has disrupted both of those, both by providing access to facts that show those people aren't as credible as they think, alternative narrative, but also by just making it much, much easier to achieve those in a sense an inflation of that sort of value where filters make it easy to look TV quality. Chat GPT means you can churn out words that make you sound like a college-educated professional at incredibly low cost rather than having to go through years of, of elite institutions to develop those skills. I can generate that. Deep fakes will soon, soon mean that we assume that any image is, is we're suspicious of any image. And in some sense, the sort of foundations on which trust in our current regime has been built will be, will be undermined and people will be seeking alternatives. That will be, that will be a profound change in society. I have some ideas about what those alternatives will be and how they need to be pretty meaningfully different. But I, it's not going to be just, it, it won't just be a restoration of what we had. Right. I think the point is, which makes a lot of sense to me, is it filters AI, it makes it hard to know who to trust because you've normalized trust just visually and, and audibly. Exactly. You used to, you used to look at someone on TV and if he sounds good on TV. Now, I think we've realized this for a while. It's a little bit of a game. It's a little bit of a game, 
But at the same time, you wouldn't learn the skills. If you think about it, you likely wouldn't learn the skills to gain that capability unless you had spent time in place, unless you had been selected by people who truly were selecting for merit in certain contexts, unless you'd spent time in. And I'm not, I'm not focused on actors particularly, although it's interesting that actors rose in importance in, in other domains. But uh, it would reflect real experience that was valuable. Now everyone knows it. Now everyone knows it a skill that's largely independent of merit in other domains. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. I wonder how much of, of that uh, trend, even separate from the AI technology side, is, is connected to the decline of religion broadly, right? Not just in the West, but but globally, I have to assume there's some connection there. So I, I yes, I think that it's a decline of, uh, it's certainly a decline of any sort of shared uh, societal ethic. In many ways, we we live, even as, even as I would say, belief in Christianity declined uh, for some time. Uh, we lived in a world where there was a, we lived in a country where there was a broad shared consensus around uh, many of the precepts of uh, Christian ethics, which uh, certainly defined the, they, they shaped our country. Our constitution was built on an assumption of uh, agreement on those. It was it was a broadly shared ethos, even in many uh, even in many domains, even by many people who didn't necessarily believe every aspect of the underlying. And uh, what I think we've seen is not just a decline of uh, Christianity of religion generally, and I, I don't even know that there's. A, Total decline of religion. I think, in many ways, what the woke uh, woke behavior is a recreation of uh, religion. You saw the sort of ritualistic uh, elements of uh, a lot of what happened in 2020, but it's uh, it's certainly a decline of a religion that shares. It's a decline of of religion that has a broadly shared broadly shared value. So, in that world, in that world, you could assume that you could reason together. To solve problems, you could you could reason around shared. Uh, you, you could either speak to or reason around shared views. Whereas now, there's there's sharply conflicting views. The way you saw in societies that underwent Marxist meaningful Marxist movements, for instance, where there's no agreement, there's no ability to agree on reality. There's no ability to agree on on morality in given situations, and that's inevitably going to lead to sharp divides. And then you have a lot of people who just don't believe anything. And uh, that, again, goes to a decline in, you could think of it as maybe several generations in a decline in religion where their parents said they didn't believe anything, but they still held to most of the norms and customs. They just they didn't, either didn't think too much about it or, or found secular justifications. But the next generation looks at that and they say, if we don't believe, if we don't believe in these foundational truths, then uh, why should we hold to these ethical standards either, 
what should we hold to these these norms that result from it? And so you're seeing the, the fruit of that as well. I want to get into uh, new founding and learn more about how you guys go about even identifying opportunities. But uh, one thing that I think is uh, interesting is you outright say you explicitly oppose uh, DEA, diversity, equity, inclusion, slash ESG as part of the business culture. Interesting timing to have this conversation given Musk just the, I think, other day, seemingly getting control for some of the comments around the DEI side. But the ESG dynamic, I think, is interesting. Lay out what is the issue in your view when it comes to ESG as a way of shaping the future. So I actually look at this as, as at, a, at a different angle than I think many, many critiques do. I, I, I'm not saying I disagree with many critiques, but I would say they're often more focused on the, the immediate surface level. I see ESG largely as a triumph of a sort of bureaucratic managerial finance is the way of looking at it. It is a, it is a model that is uh, built on, it, 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 it's, it's attempting to change the allocation of capital at a very, very large scale level, uh, built on some uh, very abstract concepts and models. So on the environmental side, uh, and the example, and, and so it's even given the particular factors there, uh, yes, they could be valid risk factors for a business. But the question is, are you making decisions on the basis of the way a sort of common sense manager, general manager, owner, CEO would make decisions uh, based on knowable information? Or are you making decisions on the basis of uh, models that are necessarily uh, deeply abstracted and, and distant from his own knowledge? and uh, let's use environmental as an example. So if you care about the environment, if you think that environmental risk is a valid factor, uh, there's a common sense solution. Like you're running a factory, you, let's say, don't dump, don't dump waste into a river. That's something where if you say, uh, hey, environmental matters, the general manager of the factory can exercise managerial judgment, entrepreneurial judgment to very clearly figure out how to solve for that. You, you can even look at a lot of things that are sort of natural pollutants. They're, they're, they're being released into the air and they're things that don't belong in the air. They're not normally in the air. But when it comes to carbon, carbon is something that's, that's natural. It, it actually, carbon dioxide does belong in the air. And, the, and you rely on these distant models, models of things years in the future, models of things that are almost impossible to predict to tell you how to reshape what you're doing in ways that are far beyond what any one person can know based on, on common sense. They rely on uh, far, more, far more sort of professional abstraction. And I would say that is, that is actually a symptom of a sort of broader mindset toward business and finance that I think is... It, it can be okay at optimizing things. It, it works in a globalizing environment where your goal is to gain scale. So you take a business that works and you try to scale it around the world. And it may be a moderately efficient means of scaling, but it it squeezes the entrepreneurial lifeblood out of a <laughs> out of a business because it replaces that sort of human judgment and and decision making by an individual with uh, the sort of middle manager who is making decisions according to he's making decisions by spreadsheet according to what a model with uh, a lot of inputs that he really has nothing to do with or, or has no ability to judge, uh, say, should be done. And that, I think, is pervaded. That, that's pervaded our economy 
in a much broader way than just ESG. But I think ESG is the ultimate manifestation of that, where you look at, I, you, you look at these sort of broad societal issues and you figure you can just tweak a few weights on a model, the models that essentially govern the allocation of capital at the trillion, multi-trillion dollar level and reshape the entire country based on, based on tweaking the spreadsheet model. That I think is a pathology that is both, it, it's, first of all, it's, it's just extremely prone to enormous levels of error. It's also, uh, extremely conceited in, in the sense that people, people believe it's within their purview to engineer, to re-engineer the world like that. Uh, and finally, it's just a, uh, I think it's a, I, it's something that certainly reflects a set of values that I would sharply disagree with, uh, in terms of, uh, many of the, uh, many of the values behind ESG, particularly as it's implemented. Yeah, I mean, certainly not, not on the conservative side or American right side. That, that I think clearly draw the line to that's, that's a very much a leftist agenda. Yes. So, so that's why when I talk about a solution to it, what I'm looking for and what I'm interested in, this is a fundamental point of what founding is doing is I'm looking for an alternative to, and by the way, I would say the same about the DEI and, and all these things where all of them are, all of them are built on, you look at why any action is done. And in many cases, it'll be argued from a frame of this is, this is consistent with some other, uh, some other age shareholder value or whatever. Uh, but ultimately, like, why is it done? There's, there's theories and models about the world that are, that are ultimately these macro theories that are non, non falsifiable or they're certainly framed in ways that are very, very difficult to falsify. And, that drives a, a wide range of this. So my, I, I see that as a bureaucratization of, of the world. And I see a solution as de-bureaucratization, fundamentally the alternative. And this goes to how do we restore trust? How do we build an alternative to these, these large-scale problems? Is it not our own ESG? It's not just copying that, but tweaking the, tweaking the engineering input. It's really re- returning to a world where decisions are made at a different level. I would say it's a world where, on the one hand, ownership and skin in the game are driving, defining traits of, of legitimacy. And on the other, I think trust is rebuilt from the ground up through communities. I believe trust to a large extent originates in communities and real human relationships. And it can certainly be scaled from there. There's lots of mechanisms to scale trust. And that's in many ways how a lot of financial firms, for instance, evolved in the first place. But I think the solution is actually to return to the emphasize the level, both, both the sort of individual entrepreneurial level for, for decision making legitimacy and the communal level for the creation of trust and really the, the origination of high trust transactions. How can we facilitate more commerce within high trust communities? And a lot of people assume that means we're just accentuating that divide. Uh, but I don't think that's the case. I actually think that's the foundation for restoring trust, period. And as, as, as a trust bubbles up across different communities, if there is any sort of shared ethic, particularly, they can, they can, people can deal with each other across these communities. They can come together. They can, can come together for common projects. They can come together for commerce that requires scale. Uh, and even if there's sharp divergences uh, in values between many of these communities, they can often still transact with each other uh, in certain domains where there is where there is agreements about about norms or where there's intermediaries who are able to who, who can be trusted intermediaries to enforce contracts. So I see I I see the sort of 
refocus on the community level as a natural uh, solution to the sort of breakdown in the in the large scale abstract institutional uh, model of trust that had that is clearly at the end of its life. So on that point, you talk about refocusing on the community level. Maybe if, if, if you have any, talk to some examples of of companies that you've invested in that they're doing just that. What are some examples of focusing on community level? I'll, I'll give a... So there's a few companies that, that that are related to this. I'll give an example at a, at a macro level, though, uh, in history that can really illustrate this. So uh, you look at the uh, 17th century, and it was a dynamic where you had the sort of lower trust in society. In 17th century England, you had lower trust in society as a whole, and you had particular groups. The Quakers were a particularly striking one that was known for being particularly high trust. They had an ethic that was an ethic that meant that people trusted them, that they would they would keep their word, they would keep their contracts, which allowed them to be high trust within each other. But they were also very desirable business partners for outsiders. And that's a that's a dynamic where it was very conducive to the formation of financial services firms because they require they require a number of interactions that are very high trust internally, and then they become, but their entire business can scale rapidly as intermediaries for uh, for outsiders. Like Barclays came out of that world where you had a community that could trust each other and could be trusted by outsiders. So I'm I'm interested in things like that where there's a there's an element that will scale based on the attributes. Uh, a few that we've done. So we we recently did one that's a pro life health insurance. And it's it's interesting because it's operating in spaces that are uh, similar to a lot of these medical sharing services, which are not technically health insurance, but there's similar dynamics at play. And in those cases, you have a community where there's shared values. What I think that leads to, among other things, is it leads to it, it leads to ethics where people really do see themselves as partners with the other people in these these pools, so they're less likely to. See the insurance companies inherently as an adverse counterparty where they're just trying to get whatever they can or be reckless about that. So this is a very early stage company. They're, they're getting ready to launch in Texas. But what you combine is you combine a sort of speaking of a culturally conservative audience, which I think is, it is a natural complement to this. A lot of these communities that remain distinct, active, high trust communities are maybe they're centered around churches or or they're centered around other sort of culturally conservative values. Those are also very alienated right now. So they're very easy to, they're very easy to persuade because especially in something like health, which has become a deeply politicized space in the post-COVID era, uh, a lot of people are, are very, very eager to make a switch as soon as they hear that there's, there's an organization that aligns with their values. Uh, but it's not just about a sort of values affinity based play. It's actually, it's a model that's going to be more market-based. It's going to be a model where there's more skin in the game in terms of they're taking advantage of certain of the... They're taking advantage of the forefront of a number of trends you're seeing in the self-pay space and the sort of in the self-insurance space for larger companies. And I think the shared shared value of many of the people who are going to be drawn to this. So you see a number of themes come together to build something that's going to be very innovative It'll be innovative. It's in a space that is trust-based. Insurance, financial services are, are trust-based. And it centers around a particular particular community that has these shared values. So that's a... 
you can think of that as a take on these broader themes, how I approach this. I, I'm very interested in the sort of direct, and we're working on a project that's actually directly taking on how do we how do we leverage these local and aligned communities? How do we provide something for them? Many of the companies we invest in are going to have an element of that. Go for they're going to be serving culturally conservative Christian or Christian communities as core customer base. There's going to be an element to which they're they're providing alternatives to bureaucratic solutions. There's the debureaucratization, and there's going to be a sort of greater appreciation of community level autonomy as a as a good as something that in a world where you have this this broader collapse, that's actually, that's going to become scarcer and more valuable. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. I've got to see we've come across some deals where the idea is really appealing and you very much like the idea, but it doesn't quite fit with the American right focus. Any any regrets from deals that, yeah, even though they didn't fit your your vision, they were profitable, but yeah, it is what it is. Ultimately, to some extent, we need to, I think, and this is this is particularly the nature of venture. I I, I want to focus on where we have an edge, both where we have a perspective that differs in a meaningful way from the market and where we end up building up a network and building up a brand and an expertise because so much of venture comes down to like, are we the most desired partner for a startup? A really good startup is likely to have is likely to have a lot of options. And the question is, why are they going to choose you? And I think and it could be price. You just decide to give them the better value. That's that's not usually the axis you want to be competing on in venture. So ultimately the question is what segment can we what segment can we become the dominant player in? Where can we become known such that if you have a company there, we are your first choice company? And uh, that requires a it requires some degree of focus, some degree of of narrowing and of discipline. Now the themes, the themes I articulate are pretty broad. As a general rule, we're going to look at companies at the intersection. My, my thesis is there's actually a stronger intersection among those themes than many assume. So there's a lot of Silicon Valley companies that are big on self-reliance, decentralization, maybe debureaucratization even, although they, they tend to focus a little differently there. I, my view is there's a very high overlap between those themes and culturally conservative communities. So if you want self-reliance, if you want distributed, whatever, distributed sovereignty of any sort, doing so through existing high-trust communities like church communities is probably going to be one of the most attractive and low-hanging fruit uh, ways of doing that, one of the most effective ways of doing that. Uh, so there's going to be an overlap between that sort of culturally conservative one. And and so, it, it, so, so to go back to your question at the high level, I don't think we're going to lose as many as uh, some might assume, because I think that for many attractive opportunities in, in, the, in one of these spaces... There's actually the, the most attractive angle for it is going to overlap with some of the others. But ultimately, we're not going to do everything. We've, 
we'll occasionally do a syndicate. Uh, we'll do something that's very opportunistic on the side. If we have a, a reason, we're actually getting ready to do a syndicate right now. It's very different. It's much more in the sort of, it's much more in the hard tech, uh, hardware space. Uh, but we have opportunistic reasons to believe that we have a real edge here, both in terms of the ability to evaluate and the ability to bring significant value to the company, even though it's a little bit outside of these core DCs for the fund. But uh, as a general rule, within our area of expertise, we're also going to be able to have the confidence to know that we we understand the deal and we understand that this is an exceptional opportunity uh, outside of there and, and, and be the first choice for the entrepreneur. Outside of there, uh, it might look good, but I also might not have quite as good a sense of what I don't know. Uh, there, there's a higher likelihood that I'll have to be competing with other sophisticated investors if it really is good. And I, so I'm, it doesn't give me too much heartburn. And for those who are listening who want to track more of your thoughts or maybe get somehow more involved with uh, what you're doing, you founding, uh, where would you point them to? And maybe lay out just some, some tidbits of advice for those that are budding entrepreneurs that are trying to look for capital from VC firms that share a similar vision as yours. So, so I'm active on Twitter. Twitter's probably the best way to follow me. I, I, we are developing a, we have a newsletter for new founding and there's various ways to sign up for new founding, but we have a, we have a talent network. So for people who are looking for jobs or for people who are looking to hire where alignment is a factor, you can go to new founding and, and sign up there. Uh, we have a fund and it's an angelist rolling fund for accredited investors. They can come and they can, uh, they can join the fund and uh, participate. And so that's, that's a, a most direct way to, uh, participate in this. But then just following, I, I, I'm active following me, following the New Founding Podcast, uh, which is actually a couple of my colleagues and have a lot of interesting guests, but I've uh, I've appeared on that and there'll be a, a few more conversations with me coming up in the near future. And, uh, and then in terms of like kid bits of wisdom, I would say this is a very, this is a time, it, it's a relatively capital constrained time. There's, there's not the abundance of capital that you saw to three, four years ago in zero interest rate environments. So my first my first advice is figure out how to build your business without requiring a lot of capital, without requiring any capital. Can you bootstrap it? Uh, notably, I think both of the companies, the, the company, both of the companies coming out of our fund, one of which we'll be announcing very soon, are bootstrapped companies up through some meaningful level of traction that, that shows founder skin in the game. It also shows that there's something real there and something that needs capital. So that's that's the first advice. It's it's often the it's very different, I think, than two years ago, where a, a good deck and a good idea and a credible founding team could get you two million dollars. But I would say, uh, and I think that's particularly true any, on anything with a right aligned thesis. In some sense, we're the sort of outsiders. We're we're the disfavored outsiders in many ways, and that speaks to. In a world where capital allocation is driven by ESG factors, uh, we're going to be at a disadvantage getting capital. Uh, that certainly can be a disadvantage. It is, it is, it is necessarily a disadvantage and necessarily capital intensive spaces. Uh, but in a world where you expect a sort of secular trend toward greater capital efficiency to be, be valued, uh, it, it allows us to build some very valuable skills early on that'll make our businesses more robust in what may be some tumultuous uh, times ahead, such as the sort of credibility bankruptcy I, I referenced earlier. And then I would say just have a, have a real, have a great business model. If you have a product that people use, if you have a, a group of customers who are 
drawn to it. I'll, I'll tell you about the pro-life health insurance company. As soon as I mentioned that thing exists, there's a large share of people who immediately want it. Just knowing that it exists, they want it. It's a space that they pay a lot of money for. It's, it, it's auto wallet share. You're not trying to speculate about a market. You're not trying to invent a market. You know exactly who your customers are. It's a competitive product right away. It's, it's created by some guys who really understand the space. They have deep experience, both on the actuary side and on the regulatory side. They understand how to create a product like this. And they know, they know the economics of the product. And so they, they, they have something that, that people want, that they know how much money it'll make them. And I, they, they're, they're launching to a group of customers who are predisposed to make the switch. There's an easy, easy path to reaching people rather than a sort of expensive long sales cycle that it's often the case if you're going after what are widely recognized as the most desired customers. Uh, whereas I think by seeking people on the right, by seeking cultural, cultural conservatives, particularly, if you have a good product that solves particular needs for them, uh, but is also just an objectively good product, they're also often the most alienated and the most willing to make a switch. And so I would encourage people to, to really think about those as natural customer bases, either defining the, the company or, or at least early adopters. Everybody, please make sure you follow Nate Fisher here on X. Again, this will be an edited podcast under Lead Lag Live. Hopefully, I'll see you all literally in about eight minutes when I have another space with Ira Joseph talking about natural gas. Thank you, Nate. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. Good to be on. Cheers, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.